the national holidays are over. This week, the Knesset reconvened and the anti-judicial overhaul protesters are again ramping up their demonstrations with Thursday's Day of Disruptions. While these protests were going on, a panel on Israel's Channel 14 News talked about the upcoming protest outside former Supreme Court President Aaron Barak's house. It was to be held as a Moroccan hafla. Because Barak, the panel agrees, is the puppet master who is pulling all the strings. If Barak agrees to the reform, they said, all protests would stop. This week, even as Fox News captures headlines throughout the world, Israel's version, Channel 14, is slowly capturing an increasingly larger audience. Somebody came to visit Israel from Mars and just judge this country by picking up its newspapers and watching its television or listening to its radios, it would come to a conclusion that we're the Marvel Universe. We have alternative realities. That's Zman Yisrael editor Biranit Goren. In this in-depth discussion, she's going to map out Israeli media for us and suggests that all of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's three ongoing court cases are tied to his need to control the media. And so this week, I, Amanda Borshel Dan, ask veteran journalist Biranit Goren what matters now. You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning. Without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli History cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So... Educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts. Bira, thank you for joining me today in the Nomi Studios at our partner podcast, Israel Stories Studios. Such a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Amanda. It's a pleasure to be here. We've had quite a week, as usual, here in Israel and around the world when it comes to media. Of course, the case of Fox News and the firing of Tucker Carlson has made headlines everywhere. And we're going to talk about our own Fox News here in Israel, Channel 14, and other things relating to Israeli media, including Communication Minister Shlomo Kahi's threats against closing swaths of Israeli media. And before we begin, I want to say... Mazel tov. Congratulations to Zman Yisrael <laughs> turning four. Thank you so much. Yes, we celebrated our fourth year anniversary on May 1st, two days ago. So that's quite a feat for us. It is. So Bira, in this week of media capturing headlines all over the world, I ask you, what matters now? Well, we're coming off a month of uh, holiday, Passover, Israel's 75th anniversary, 
And the press is back to business. We're back to where we were with the judicial overhaul, with the law legislation that's coming our way, the Israeli budget, and Knesset is back to business, and so is the press. Okay, so we're here to talk about media. So to begin with, let's map out the media. It's very confusing, I think, for mostly our overseas listeners to understand what is Haaretz, what is Ynet, what are all these different creatures that we see popping up on the internet. So give us a from left to right map of Israeli media. From left, okay. <laughs> um, Haaretz is certainly the most left-wing um, media outlet. It's a daily newspaper and a very popular website. And after that, I would say probably I'd put Yediot HaKonot at a gap. It's more towards the center. I'd probably put Yediot HaKonot, who's the, uh, um, used to be the largest daily newspaper in Israel. Now it's considered the second largest. Um, Yediot HaKonot has a very popular website called Ynet. It also has a very popular financial newspaper called Kalkalist. So it's a, it's a bit of a, it's an empire. It's a media empire. And I would put them leaning left, but mostly central. And after that, I would put Channel 12. And I will put them all over the map. I think uh, they did a very good job in, in making sure that they have both right-wing and left-wing voices, both radical right-wing and radical left-wing voices. So I would put them dead on in the middle. I think they aim to be the mainstream. And their television, they also have an internet site. Yes, and the, their internet website is probably the most popular today. They're very strong, you know, with crossovers from, from television, so it makes them quite a powerhouse. Um, after that, I'd put Channel 13. Now, Channel 13, I should have put more to the left, but they're just transitioning. They used to be very much on the right, but their main star power, the two uh, the two rating grabbers, uh, television hosts, left them a few months ago. Uh, one is to Channel 14, which we'll get to, and the other one to the Channel 11, which is the uh, public broadcasting service. So as soon as those two left, um, they've become very left-wing. So, so in a way, I should put them on the left on the left side of the map. But their the ratings is not very high. They're probably second or third on television, but quite a gap to Channel Twelve. And then we have Channel Eleven, which is the public um, network. Channel Eleven, I don't think was ever was ever a partisan uh, channel, but. They are loathed by the current government. You mentioned that uh, the communications minister, Shlomo Kerry, the first thing he did when he came into office was say, I'm going to close the public, uh, the public channel, their, you know, at least their news. Um, and what they did was they took a very right affiliated host, a very popular right affiliated host from Channel 13 and gave her the primetime slot of uh, of every day at 7 p.m. So in a way, they kind of... Um, game the system. <laughs> yeah, they game the system. They bought themselves some kind of a shield from being shut down, but also painted themselves more right-oriented, if you will. And Channel 11 has amazing podcasts and it has radio stations. It's also, I would say, an empire. Uh, Channel 11 is amazing, especially in what 
isn't re related to news. Um, it has the best dramas. It's the only channel that actually invests in 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 dramas and series. And Tehran, uh, yes, Tehran is uh, is one of them. Quite a few of their shows make it to Netflix and Apple TV, and certainly they're they're powerhouse in that respect. As far as the news goes, they're in Israel. Their ratings was quite low. They usually were the the, the bottom, and they do a decent job. I don't have any bad word to say about it, but they don't attract as much attention and I don't think they have as much traction. And then we're getting to the right uh, side of the map. There are two forces to be reckoned with. One is Israel Ayom, which is the largest newspaper in Israel. It's a free newspaper. So it's, I'm not really sure. And certainly for many years, the impression was that it didn't have as much impact on the, on the public discourse that reflected their size because it's a free newspaper. People would pick it up going on the train or on the bus. So it was more a time passer. They weren't very strong or they didn't put much investment into investigative reporting, etc. And more than anything, they were completely identified with Benjamin Netanyahu. The newspaper was founded by Sheldon Adelson about 15 years ago, and it was completely um, beholden to, to Netanyahu, it was reflecting his his line. It was very um, um, positive towards him. So to a point that in Israel, we used to call it the, the Bibi Press or the Bibi Paper. That changed in the last couple of years, um, I think since uh, Mr. Edelson died. I think his wife, Miriam Edelson, is a little less invested in helping Netanyahu. She's a very political person. She has ideologies, but I don't think that she's as invested as her husband was. And we also see that, I think, in the United States, as far as her uh, donating to Republicans or, or being involved in, in various races. So the newspaper is less as extreme as it was before, but it still has a right-wing agenda. And then we get to Channel 14, which you alluded to, as you said, we have our own Fox News. Now, Channel 14 would love to be Fox News. Let's let's put this on the table. It's, a, it's still a nickel and dime production. They don't have the money that Murdoch put into uh, Fox News. They, they don't have the, the ability. Uh, they don't have the stars. They don't have anything that relates, you know, even from a technology point of view, they're very low tech in that respect. Everything is done in a single um, in a single, a single studio. There are no productions. There's no outside productions, etc. But they are completely committed to one thing, and that is to Benjamin Netanyahu. They are his house channel. Um, he repays them by often giving them uh, interviews, and it needs to be said, Netanyahu does not give interviews in the Israeli press at all. I think his last interview was about three years ago, and it was before the elections, to other uh, a media one -on -one outlets. A one-on-one interview you're talking about, yes. not a, yes. a press conference. But even press conferences. He doesn't Rarely. do press conferences. I mean, he normally just announces that uh, he's going to make an announcement at 8 p.m., and then all the channels just broadcast it, which is hilarious. You know, you, you would never see Biden just every week or whatever it was, you know, just hogging the prime time and all the networks just letting him, you know, without questions, without anything. So he would normally just give a statement and there, there wouldn't even be journalists there to begin with, let alone somebody to ask questions. So 
the one-on-one situation where you can interview somebody and ask him questions, that doesn't happen with Netanyahu. He, he pretty much bars the mainstream media from interviewing him. And the only place you would see it is uh, on Channel 14, along with his wife, Sarah Netanyahu, and his son, Yaya Netanyahu. They, 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 they are frequent frequenters, in a way, over there. That channel is completely devoted to Netanyahu and... For a long time, it's, it, it, it existed for a long time. It rebranded itself. It used to be Channel 20, and it used to be uh, called the uh, Religious Channel, or Moreshet, I don't know how you say that. Tradition. Tra- the Tradition Channel, yeah. And they rebranded themselves about a year or two ago to Channel 14. It's actually called Now 14, and built that ki- a kind of a, an alternative reality, as I like to call it, um, where they're actually putting themselves and pivoting themselves on the point that they're going to show things from their point of view, which is 180%, sorry, 180 degrees, (laughs) the opposite of what you'd see in mainstream media, as far as they're concerned. And they say this, you know, I'm not, I'm not analyzing things. I'm telling you what they say. As far as they're concerned, the media in Israel is very left-wing, and as far as they're concerned, it's very anti-Netanyahu, and they need to balance this out by bringing the picture from the other side. So essentially what we're hearing is that on the left, we have Haaretz, which is quite far left, and on the far right, we have Channel 14, and of course in the middle, we have other things such as Arut Sheva and other smaller operations, Ma'ariv and Zman Yisrael, of course. I don't count those because those are a niche, you know, even Zman Yisrael, we're a current affairs website, we're not a news website. So we have a niche, we have an identity, we have an agenda. When you talk about the, the larger viewpoint, the national media, as you like to call it, if you will, the national media as a whole, then you're, you're looking at pretty much four players in in this game, Um, four or five players in this game, some having both internet and television, some having both newspaper and internet, etc., but not more than that. This country is small. We have 10 million people, about 20% are Arab, so they don't they don't want to read Hebrew newspapers. They have their own media. And about another 15% are ultra-Orthodox or religious people who don't want to read. They have their own media. They have their own alternative reality. So if I think if somebody came to visit Israel from Mars, you know, if, if, there, if there ever was life there, and somebody came to visit Israel from Mars and just judge this country by picking up its newspapers and watching its television or listening to its radios, it would come to a conclusion that we're the Marvel universe. We have alternative realities. There's like, um, there's a Benjamin Netanyahu, who's the prime minister, everybody agrees on that. But who he is, what he's doing, and why he's doing it is a completely different story and a completely different affair. If you pick up a Haredi, uh, an orthodox, orthodox newspaper, or Haaretz, or watch Channel 14, those are completely alternate realities. I love that. They're parallel. <laughs> I love that analogy. But Bira, why do we even need a free press? Why is it important? You know, I like to say, to tell this story when I, I wrote about this when we started Zman Israel. About 10 years ago, I visited Romania. It was the first time I ever visited Romania. And it was a few years after the fall of Ceausescu and uh, the country being liberated from dictatorship after many, many decades. And I sat there with some journalist friends and, you know, just being interested in what this country is like. And the thing that struck me and what they were telling me was all the press used to be 
one way or another, um, handled by Ceausescu's people. Either it was their own people, either, either the publishers were friends of him or friends of his or people he put in place. So the Romanians grew up not believing the press. They knew that whatever they were reading is is from the government. And even though that fell, even though they became a democracy, even though newspapers started out, they never lost their disbelief in the press, so they just wouldn't read it. They, the, 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 the most, it's a huge country, it has tens of millions of people, and the most read newspaper had something like, when I was there, something like 250,000 readers, so that was the biggest newspaper. So it was really to a point where they completely avoided mainstream media and actually went for alternate media, um, WhatsApp, you know, social media, and conspiracy theories were rife there. They were so rife that Romania became a hotbed for the measles explosions because they wouldn't vaccinate, because they b completely believed the anti-vaccination stories that were moving, moving around, and there was no way of reaching them and, and giving them, you know, reliable information because that's where they were getting it. And I remember leaving and thinking, oh my God, this would happen to us in Israel because... At that point, when I visited Romania, it was a threshold moment for Israeli press with, as far as you know, Netanyahu came back to power in 2009. Very quickly, he went on ahead, or, or, or there was a war, if you will, between him and the media. He truly, truly believes that the media in Israel is against him, that is trying to oust him, is, is, doing every, is, is uniting with his opponents, wherever they may be they may be within his own party as well and and it, and it was and he started doing everything possible to create an alternative to 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 do he did two things one is he's still doing it but one is a consistent um campaign against the media and the journalists in Israel and the second one was trying to bring in other forces to create his own Fox News, if you will, which ties into why he's now standing trial. He's standing trial for three cases. And case number one is him, uh, is a bribery uh, charge, is him trying to control the largest, then largest um, media outlet in Israel, which is the Walla News website, in in exchange for regulatory uh, favors for the owner uh, of that website at the time. He's standing trial for trying to reach a, a, a bribery deal with the owner of Yediot Acharonot, who wanted Israel Ayom to start either charging money or stop, you know, beating him in his own game because it was unfair. He was selling newspapers they weren't and they were stealing readers and, and advertisers. So he had negotiations with, with the prime minister over that. We'll help you. We'll give you better press coverage. And in return, you ask Edelson to stop, you know. Um, and the third, even the third uh, case, which is seemingly not about communications it's about him getting free presents and cigars and champagnes and everything even that does have to do with the press because the person who was giving him all of that which is Arnold Milchan the, the famous producer he was trying to convince Arnold Milchan to buy Idiota Chonot and at, at the same time he was trying to convince another mil billionaire James Packer who was also mentioned in this case 
to 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 set up with Murdoch, you know, to set up a Fox News channel in Israel. So everything that led Netanyahu to stand trial has to do with his um, his his um, complicated relationship with the Israeli media. He wants them to appreciate him. He wants them to love them, and they're not. There's something to be said that he's right. The media traditionally has been against Netanyahu, but not in the sense that not in the sense that they just didn't like him. They were very critical of his policies and, and the way that he leads. And I, I always remember during the Trump years, Martin Barron, who was the um, editor of the uh, Washington Post at the time, the great Martin Barron, um, he was asked, why are you always at war with, with the administration, with the Trump administration? And he said, I'm not at war. I'm at work. And I love that because I think the Israeli media, their standing point was they truly believe that this is what they need to do. They need to criticize the government. And this is a government that doesn't, uh, I'm talking about the existing government and Netanyahu's governments as a whole, they didn't like being criticized. <laughs> you know, they, they really did not want, um, they didn't, they really did not feel that that was the, the, the role of the press to be at work. <laughs> Do you appreciate Times of Israel podcasts and our truly independent journalism reported directly from wartime Israel? Has the Times of Israel become important for your understanding of Israel and the Jewish world during this time of rising global anti-Semitism? If so, please join others like you who support our work by joining the Times of Israel community. For as little as $6 per month, you'll get an ad-free experience of our site and apps, exclusive TOI community content, and most importantly, you'll become partners of ours in ensuring media coverage of Israel that's professional, factual, and fair. For more information and to join, just go to timesofisrael.com slash join. It's so interesting in Israeli media, and we feel this uh, in the difference between, say, the Times of Israel and Zman Yisrael, in that uh, the Times of Israel is still trying to have this at least objective facade that we're trying to have uh, balance in, in our writing. But in Zman Yisrael, I see in your pieces that your opinions come through, that the writer's opinions come through, that the writer puts himself much more into it. And you see this throughout Israeli press in general, that Israeli uh, reporters are opinionated because maybe because they're Israeli, but also because that's just the way press is done here. It's not this uh, taking yourself out of the picture and trying to report on the scene. It's really not that. Do you agree with me, Bira? Partly, yes. I think, first of all, Israelis are opinionated. That's a fact. They're, they're, they would say what they think anywhere. You can stand, you know, you, you can, you can stand in line to buy milk and somebody from behind you, whom you've never talked to, will explain to you why this specific milk is probably not better, not good for you. And you didn't even ask for advice. So, for sure. And how many hats does one baby need? Really? Absolutely. Please, old ladies, come on. <laughs> Absolutely. And the way you drive and the way you dress and the way you look, you'll get advice everywhere. So that that's, you know, that's the DNA of it. Um, but I think I don't, I don't completely agree with you that the opinions are everywhere, but I do agree with you that there's agenda. 
I will agree with you that we wear our agenda on our sleeve. Um, and actually, I think that we have quite a lot to thank Netanyahu for, because I think he, for many years, even before he was back in power, for many years, uh, him and, and the right-wing uh, politicians in general um, kept accusing the Israeli media, you're too left-wing, you're too left-wing, you're too left-wing, to a point where they pushed, it became an identity issue, to the point where they pushed um, the, the, the publishers and the media outlets and the channels to ask themselves, okay, I know Amanda is... I'm just giving an example. I know Amanda is pro-whatever, pro-peace, and I know that Bureau is anti-peace or whatever, so I'm good, I'm covered. And if not, then I need to bring somebody who's anti. You, you actually see this in, you know, our primetime uh, television shows um, on Friday nights, you know, where you have the weekly roundups. They make a point of, of, of having, they know that they're going to have that person there who's very who's known to be left wing so they'll make sure that they'll bring somebody from the right wing to sit next to him etc so it, it it kind of outed the journalists themselves i think maybe 10 20, more than 10 years ago but 20 years ago i wouldn't have a clue i would sit with you and we would look at the who's the reporter for this and who's i wouldn't have a clue who they voted for and today you you kind of you don't say who you vote for but you kind of uh, announce yourself, if you will, on what side of, of the fence you're sitting, um, in what camp you're putting yourself in. It's very rare, especially for people who write about politics and who write about current affairs, it's very rare that we don't know who they side with. So with that in mind, it, it I think it makes things easier. I, th I think it, it, makes, it makes it messy, but it makes it easier. There's no attempt to mask it and and to, to 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 try to be who you're not having said that professionalism is professionalism if you if you if you write about the facts you don't make up facts you know and if, if you and if you if you write about something that is controversial you bring both sides of 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 or or try to present both sides of the argument even if you're in favor of one side and professionalism is something that is becoming scarce in Israel. So I think, I look at Fox News, setting aside the very big, huge elephant in the room um, of conspiracy theories, did Trump lose the elections, and everything that happened to them that led them to two huge lawsuits, one which they've already settled and another that's still standing. But I watched uh, Fox News coverage on, um, on election night when Biden won. It's it's still professional. They don't make up polls. They don't look for pollsters that will give them the right numbers to, to tell their own stories. They, they still report what's happening. You, 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 you don't get an alternative reality. You get the same reality with a different perspective, but you get the same reality. That's not the case in Israel. It, it, it's become too radicalized. And just looking at the national media in, in, as in general, I think we've seen a drop in the professionalism. Um, channel 14 is a good example. This is a channel that is now a force to be reckoned. So we need to look at what their journalism is like and not just what their agenda is like. What worries me the most is that we're we're at a point where there's a chasm in, in, in Israel society that probably or maybe isn't even recoverable. And I think the press has a job more than any other time in Israel today 
to inform people, to inform, not just not just give them what they want to hear, but to actually tell them what is happening, explain to them what is happening and make sure they know what is happening in, in every in every aspect of life. And I think if you're if you're a pro BB uh, voter, if you voted BB and you love him and you think he's great and you watch Channel 14, you're going to get an, an, a reality where Netanyahu, I'll, I'll just give you an example, OK, if I may. But let's let's take one that is very radicalized. We have a defense minister, Yoav Gallant. Yoav Gallant, a month, a little over a month ago, stepped up, spoke publicly and said, we are at a clear and present danger to Israeli uh, security because of the reform or because of the judicial overhaul and its effect on Israeli society. We must stop. And the day after, Netanyahu fired him or said he would fire him. That day, if you remember, all, all hell broke loose. People in the middle of the night left their homes and went out to, to, um, to demonstrate against this. It was a, it was a turning point in, in, in the entire reform versus uh, demonstration issue. People were shocked that he, he would fire Gallant for that. If you turned on Channel 14 that evening, or if you even just went to their website, the headline was, Netanyahu is showing a leadership. Colin, he finally fired Gallant. So looking at that, you didn't know that the people were, dem they didn't say a word about people on the streets demonstrating. You wouldn't have a clue. They even suppressed what he said about the clear and present danger, which is quite a, you know, quite a sentence for a defense minister to say. As far as they were concerned, and the way that they covered it, was that he was a rogue politician from Netanyahu's party who's being uh, subversive and needs to be fired. And finally, Netanyahu did it. Hooray. That's the picture you would get. And I think about the people, and there's quite a few people nowadays. I mean, they have a market share of about 5 to 10%, depending on the hour. So that means that there's a, a, a group of people that this is what they watch and this is what they know. That's the reality that they see. Jonathan Geffen, who is probably one of our most famous um, songwriter or writer, he, he was a journalist, he wrote songs, he wrote um, poetry, he wrote books. He's really a staple of Israeli culture. There's, there, there, isn't, there isn't a single person in Israel who doesn't know at least half a dozen songs that he wrote. Children grew up reading his books and listening to his records. He's really an icon. He's also very left-wing. Channel 14 didn't mention even once that he died. He died two weeks ago or three weeks ago. It was a major story in Israel. You know, his songs were being played on the radio. He, his photo was on the front page of every newspaper. The television broadcasted live his funeral. Not a word in Channel 14. So a person who watched Channel 14 that week didn't even know that Jonathan Geffen died. Maybe maybe it was mentioned in passing somewhere, but there's a good chance he didn't even know that it was an important story to tell. So, you know, those are, those are just two examples. I'll give you another one, which, which is quite astonishing to me as a journalist. I think 
we all want to have scoops. We all want to have exclusives. We all want to be able to have something that everybody then follows up on and writes and quotes and becomes the topic of the day. It's, it's that's, that's the holy grail for any journalist. Channel 14 has an exclusive interview with Yarif Levine, the justice minister who is the uh, godfather or the brain, uh, the maker of this judicial overhaul. And um, they interview him about the judicial overhaul, 14 minutes, a very detailed interview. Um, they even ask the right questions, you know, that they, I, I have no qualms with what they were asking him. Um, the headline that they took out of it was uh, something about uh, Chayut, the, the, the president of the Supreme Court, that she needs to be investigated and Barak needs to be uh, the, the former Supreme Court uh, president, Aaron Barak, should, should be investigated, whatever, something very, um, very um, troll. Trolling? I don't know. A trolling headline, if you will, that will only upset other people and fine. Nobody watched it, I think, from our end. I mean, it, it just went under the radio with the exception of this headline that they took out. Two weeks later, somebody who did watch that sent a tape of a, of a moment or a minute within this interview to another journalist in Aritz saying, you completely missed this. That minute was... Yariv Levine saying on the record live that they actually made a mistake and their judicial overhaul, would it go through, is the end of democracy. He agreed, he, he essentially agreed with everything that the demonstrations and the anti-judicial overhaul people were saying. That became a huge headline. It became a huge headline worldwide. There wasn't a single newspaper in Israel. I've seen it in, even appearing in the New York Times, etc. The justice minister, the person who actually started the whole thing, this whole mess, is admitting on television that his own reform would hurt Israeli democracy. It's not done in democracy, he said. It would lead to things that are not done in democracy. They had this. They completely buried it. They completely buried it. They had a headline that is worldwide and they completely buried it because it didn't fit the story of that alternative reality. It was almost like going back to Marvel Universe. It was almost like there was a, 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 a hole, you know, one of those holes between the universes and something sipped in. So they just ignored it. You know, it, it doesn't belong to this universe. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's quite astonishing. I think... I try to see television, I see a lot of, this is part of my work, I see probably five or six hours a day of um, of current affairs um, shows in Israel. And I do try to to see both sides. I do, I do watch some of Channel 14 clips and, and I can't watch the whole thing. It's, it's not my, my reality. But um, it's, it's, I would say that today, with with the rift that there is in the Israeli society, there is a rift within the Israeli media, and the thing that worries me the most is that we're becoming, there's like silos, you know, like there's um, this country and this state, the state of Israel after 75 years, is actually 
probably broken down to various substates that have their own um, microorganism, including their own media and, and their own viewpoint. And um, we're too small countries to be able to afford that. You But know? wasn't Israel founded on this kind of very, very uh, subjective media, meaning each of the original news outlets were either aligned with a, a political party or some kind of uh, movement, were they not? Well, first of all, you know, some of the newspapers existed well before the um, the, the country existed. Yediot Acharonot exists for 100 years or so. Haaretz, I think, 120. Um, there, there's been ver various other newspapers that have been closed by now, but uh, there's definitely always this appeal for the politicians to own or rather to control the media always, everywhere, whether it's the UK, Tony Blair, his relationship with Murdoch, etc. There's always this relationship between the press and the government. There's always this uh, yearning to control the press. There's always this uh, animosity towards uh, critical press. It, it always exists. And within that, you balance it out. You know, 75 years ago, we had several newspapers. Some of them and some of the newspapers that just started out were politically affiliated. They were, uh, you know, the, the, gov the government, uh, Mapai, was, who was the uh, David Ben-Gurion's party. It had its own newspaper, and then the communists had their own newspaper, and, you know, the right-wing people had their own news. Yeah, and, and Channel 7 is, is something that started off from the settlers in Judea and Samaria and, and Gaza, you know. So, yes, but somehow they, they weren't controlled by those politicians. They had an agenda. It was, I, I wouldn't say that they were, there weren't Pravda, they weren't there, you know, it was, it was, they had proper journalists and, and proper editors, and the professionalism that we keep talking about was there. They weren't there to make up stories, and they weren't there to create an alternative, alternative reality. They were there to report a reality with their own perspective or with their party's perspective. And I respect that. I think that, you know, let's not shy around. The New York Times has a perspective. The Washington Post has a perspective. And it's completely different than, I don't know, um, Steve Bannon's, whatever his newspaper is called, or whatever, Breitbart or, or Newsmax, you know. I'm not against perspective. I'm not against people having a choice and being informed in various ways and, and uh, the discourse, the public discourse, being um, fueled by different newspapers and different media outlets. That's great. I think the problem starts, and this is a problem that probably not just in Israel, but worldwide, is when fake news zips in and when when conspiracy theories are so rampant and and the the, the social media feeds com, feeds the press instead of the press feeding social media at that point professionalism becomes an issue if you don't have it if you don't have people who put themselves first and foremost as journalists and only after right wing left wing whatever it is if you don't if if their religion is not journalism but rather a different religion, then you're in trouble. 
Very fascinating. We've gone on too long, but before we end, I'd really like to talk about something that is somewhat unique to Israel, and that's the censorship. And if our religion is journalism, sometimes we have to bow at the altar of the censor and say, hey, let us actually print what we need to print. Tell us a little bit about what the censor is to begin with. Well, we have an army censorship, and by law, um, every journalist, every press outlet, media outlet, has to submit anything that has to do with the um, Israeli security in in a very broad sense of the word. Um, if we write about Iran, if we write about the relationship between Israel and Azerbaijan, whatever it is, we're supposed to submit it uh, to the censor, to the censor um, for review, and they either okay it or they take out a few words or they ask you to change something or they completely strike it out. There's one other thing that I want to say that I think we also have one other thing that is very unique to Israel, even though it's not unique. In, in I'll tell you what it is. We have gag orders. We have uh, court guard gag orders. Everybody has them. You know, the United States has them. You can go to court and get a gag order. We have more gag orders statistically than any other country in the world. We're the number one. So we're censored, if you will, f- from all sides of, of, of the of the aisle. You mentioned Tucker Carlson. Last night, there was a, 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 when I woke up this morning, I read a, a breaking news stories on, um, on the New York Times where they revealed the, the damning uh, email that, or text that uh, Tucker Carlson wrote, which actually led to Fox settling with Dominion for $787.5 million. It's a number I'll never forget. And also firing him, essentially. I read this letter. Oh my God, it's nothing. It's it's parves, we say in Hebrew, you know. I mean, you fired him for that. Come and watch our channel 14. It's even worse, you know. But the, the thing is that struck me was that they published this um, text that has a gag order. In the Dominion case, it was submitted, etc. And it was blackened out by court order. The New York Times doesn't care. It wouldn't even think twice to publish something that has public interest. In Israel, oh hell, we care, and we get in trouble if we don't. If there's a gag order, you can't publish. If you know by the court, even if we think it's super important, and if the censorship tells you you can't publish something or strike something out, we can argue. There's various things we can do, but there's almost zero chance you'll you'll win that argument. And it's ridiculous. And sometimes it's being used against us. Um, at some point, I remember the censorship telling me that I can't write something or telling me that I need to take something out of one of our uh, articles and um, explaining to me that it, I'm, we're, I need to take this out because the, the enemy shouldn't know. And if it's been published in our articles, then it makes it official. You know, I, I can quote Syrian press saying this and that, but if I say this, that makes it official, even if I'm just opining on something. And I thought it was ridiculous and I had no choice and I, I figured I'll pick my battles. It wasn't such an important sentence and I took it off. And then the morning after, everybody had that sentence or that that end. So I called the censorship to complain. And he said, yeah, well, we came to the, you know, the, 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 the powers that be came to the conclusion that they actually want the enemy to know. You know, they actually want 
to hint the enemy that we're standing behind this whatever it is so i don't know it's a it's it's a it's a small minefield to walk through uh sometimes um i think with the internet and social media it's become harder for them to, to monitor things gag orders as well i mean there's lots of examples where there's a gag order to not publish somebody's name but if you just search google you'll find it because everybody's already talking about it and and writing it on facebook or twitter or whatever um but it makes the press handicapped you know so on the one hand, we have, I think, silos of press, and we have government that truly wants to control the press. We have various censors and gag orders that, that are limiting the press. And journalism as a whole is not such a, such a fantasy anymore for, for young people. That's the press we have. And within that, there are few, and it needs to be said, that are still doing a really good job. I think the fact that we're talking about the Israeli press, we're not Romania. We still have an impact. It, when somebody breaks a story at uh, 8 p.m. or when Haaretz has a, a major story, or Yediot Achoronot, or Zman Israel for that matter, it still makes an impact. Still, People still talk about it. They'll say they don't believe the press, but if it's not written in the press, they when it's written in the press, they believe it. There, there's a, a subconscious belief still that if some if something was published in the press, then it must be right. Bira, thank you so much for this. Thank you, Amanda. When I spoke with Zman Yisrael editor Birani Gorin this week, I kept thinking about how journalism in Israel is often a gateway into politics. Israel is not unique in this. For example, former UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson was a longtime journalist. But today here in Israel, we have Yeshatid head Yair Lapid, who followed in the footsteps of his journalist father, Tommy. There's labor head Merav Mikhaeli and a previous labor head, Shelly Yachimovich. Former Merit's head Nitzan Horovitz was a journalist, as well as the late Yossi Sarid. The list goes on deep into Israel's past. And, you know, come to think of it, even Theodore Herzl was a journalist. This podcast was recorded in Jerusalem's Nomi Studios and produced and edited by The Podwaves. Have a comment about this or other episodes of What Matters Now? Email us at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Look for more What Matters Now episodes and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Until next week, Shalom. Shalom.